would please take out your Bibles this morning and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter number 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, there would be one under the chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and you could turn in it to page number 21 in the back portion, and you would find yourself in Matthew 24. Now, we have been continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, and we said last time we were together that before we get to the prophetic section of the book in the last part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, that we were going to take an excursus or an excursion. And part of what we wanted to do was to get some perspective on prophecy. And so last time we were together, we looked at some of the signs that the coming of Christ is near and that the end of the age is near. Now, when you start talking about the end being near, there are many people in our world today who have a very skeptical, very dubious perspective about talk about signs of the end. And in that regard, I want to tell you the story. It's the story of Reverend Uli, who was the pastor of the Swedish Lutheran Church, and Pastor Sven, who is the pastor of the Swedish Covenant Church. And they had churches right next to one another across the road from each other. And this one particular day, you could find the two pastors out there, and they were helping one another to erect a sign by the roadway. And here's what the sign said. The end is near. Turn yourself around while you have some time to do it. And then, just as they were finishing up that sign, suddenly this car came speeding by. This guy leaned out the window, shaking his fist at him, and said, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. Seconds later, you hear the squealing of tires and this giant splash. And Pastor Ole turns to Pastor Sven and he says to him, Do you think the sign maybe should just say, Bridge out? <laughs> A lot of reactions to the idea that the signs are near, that the end is near. But despite all of the emotion that people have with all of that, the reality is that the Bible gives a very detailed description of the end of the age. Now, part of the skepticism that comes from the culture and the society comes because there have been people in the culture who talked about signs of the end, and then they would set specific dates. So before we move ahead, I just want to make um, a point about a twofold emphasis that I see in the Bible. And here's the first part of that emphasis. Avoid setting dates. Look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Chapter 24 and verse 36. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And so if even the angels don't know the exact date, we should certainly avoid setting dates. And then you'll notice in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 13, Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. 
So the first perspective that we need to have that the New Testament gives us is we are to avoid setting dates because we do not know precisely when Christ is coming back again and when the end of the age will be. But there's another side to this, and that is the Bible teaches us that we are to be aware of the stage being set prophetically. Turn over to chapter 16 of Matthew. Chapter 16. And notice verse 1. Here the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they're testing him and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Notice Jesus' reply to them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you not know how to discern the appearance or you, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? In other words, they wanted to know, are you legitimately the Messiah? And basically what he says is it's important to beware of the signs of the times. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 31, he told the parable of the trees. He says, we talked about this last time, when you see the trees budding just a little bit, then you know that summer is coming. And the same thing would be true of some of the signs of the end. We need to be aware of the stage being set. We can know, in other words, that it is near. We may not be able to set a date, but we can know that is near. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 25, 13, be on the alert. We need to be alert. Now what I want to do before we move ahead today is I want to review some of the things we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We began to look at some of the signs that the coming of Christ is near and the end of the age is near. Not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, just some of them. And so just by way of review, we first looked at the return of Israel and how that is a sign of the fact that we are near the end. And Israel has sovereign control over her territory for the first time in 25 centuries. A second sign we looked at that things are near is the revived Roman Empire. And we went back to Daniel chapter 2 and we looked at this image of this statue that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And we, we talked about how it is a symbol of the four worldwide kingdoms that would exist before the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom on the planet. And you remember there's this rock that comes out of heaven that smashes on the final stage on the toes. And that's a signal that Messiah's kingdom is coming. And we talked about how uh, this is a, a description, really, that points to a, a, a revival of the Roman Empire in some form, that the Roman Empire would reformulate, would consolidate, and that began to happen in 1957, and it has been exploding forward since 1992 in significant ways. And then we saw a third sign last time, and that was the rise of globalism, because the Antichrist who will come on the scene one day is going to form a one-world government. You just don't do that without worldwide global thinking. And we pointed out that, that globalism is at its strongest that it's ever been in the last 4,000 years. It goes back to 4,000 years ago in the Tower of Babel. It's stronger now than it has ever been in history since that period 4,000 years ago. 
And then a fourth sign we want to look at that we made reference to a little bit last time, but we didn't look at it, that the end is near, is a northern coalition against Israel. A northern coalition against Israel who in the future will attack the nation of Israel. So we need to turn to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. So you need to grab your Old Testament, head to the book of Ezekiel, and if you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find Ezekiel 38 on page 618. So let me just give you, as we move into this particular sign of a northern coalition against Israel, let me give you today's plan. We're going to look at four things in our time together. First of all, we're going to look at the flow of Ezekiel, the flow of the book of Ezekiel. The second thing we're going to look at is the lineup of nations in this northern coalition against Israel. Thirdly, we will look at these nations' aim, their aim, and in conjunction with that, God's plan. They have an aim, God has a plan. And then we're going to look very briefly at God's awesome act that He does in this event of this attack against Israel by the northern coalition. So that's our plan. That's where we're going. We want to begin by looking at the flow of the book of Ezekiel. Now here's basically what happens in the middle part of the book. In chapter 36 to 37, we have Israel being restored to their land. Chapter 37 is the famous chapter on the dry bones, which is a picture of the nation regathering together. Look in chapter 37 at verse 11. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Remember, they are in uh, dispersion right now. They had, had the Babylonian dispersion happen to them. So in verse 12 he says, Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you again into the land of Israel. Now this is a very encouraging prophecy to Ezekiel and the people at the time because they were experiencing the Babylonian captivity. And if you begin to look at the details of this, we find that the regathering of Israel begins as a partial regathering as the nation regathers in an, a state of unbelief. And that's really what we largely see right now. You know, Israel is largely a secular nation right now. But the regathering becomes complete when it becomes a nation of belief, and that will happen yet in the future. So 36 and 37, you have Israel being restored to the land. In chapter 40 to 48, we have the temple being reestablished in the millennial kingdom. Between those two events of them being restored to the land and the temple in the millennial kingdom, we have chapters 38 and 39, and here we have unpacked for us a future invasion of regathered Israel. And when God thwarts this invasion, the nation largely is going to turn to the Lord and look to Yahweh again. Now, there's a lot we're going to cover today, and, and I just want you to understand a couple of things as we do this. Number one, remember, one of my primary goals is just to raise again our appreciation for prophecy. 
Secondly, we're going to be looking at a lot of information, so you're going to get a lot of stuff thrown at you. The details aren't what's important. I just want you to get the big picture. Now, what I want to do is I want to read some selected sections out of Ezekiel 38. I invite you to follow along. We're not going to be able to read all the way through 38 and 39, but I want to read some sections. Notice 38 verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, Beth Togamah from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. And then notice verse 8, and after many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from the many nations, it's talking about Israel, to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up, and you will come like a storm, and you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. What is the plan? Verse 12, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited against the people which are gathered from the nation, speaking of Israel, who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Verse 15, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Now, we need to look at some of the details of all of that. Now, as we do that, I want you to know that there are some commentators on the Bible who would say what we have just read is metaphorical. It is just a simple picture, they would say, of the struggle between good and evil. Just a metaphorical picture of good and evil struggling back and forth. I would say this about that. A couple of things need to be noticed. Number one is that we have very specific nations mentioned here. Nations that were known very clearly at the time. Second thing I might note is let's go back to the Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And we have to say that those prophecies were fulfilled literally, normally, when it said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. So I feel uncomfortable uh, taking these verses as some sort of metaphorical description. 
There are some other commentators who come to Ezekiel 38 and they would say, these events have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled centuries ago. These are not future events. And to that perspective, I would simply say this. A couple of things. First of all, there are some time clues that are given to us in Ezekiel 38. You'll notice in verse 8 it says, After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored. And then in verse 16 of chapter 38, says, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days. Now, if you take those phrases from the Old Testament, the latter years and the last days, you will find that those terms are used to describe the time directly prior to the return of Messiah to set up his kingdom on the earth. Another thing to note, is that these events that are described here happen after a worldwide regathering of the nation of Israel. Remember in verse 8 of chapter 38, he says that Israel will come back from many nations. And we, we, we pointed out last time, that really began in 1948, continued on in 1967 when Israel got back Jerusalem already fulfilled? Well, another thing about all of that is that when you look at the battle that is described here, you find there is no historical match with history. When you look at the nations and you look at the events and you look at the fact that it's going to say here in, in chapter 38, because the, the, the defeat is so incredible, it's going to take Israel seven months to bury all the dead bodies. When you look at all of that, the events and all the descriptions, historians will clearly tell us there is no historical match. I believe this is a description of a future event that is to come. So as we said, the first thing we want to do is look at the flow of Ezekiel, the flow of the book. Second thing we want to do is we want to look at the lineup of nations. And as we get ready to do this, I want you to be reminded of something that's very important. What is described here was predicted 2,600 years ago. 2,600 years ago, a description is given of an atmosphere after the return of Israel that you might find rather startling. What we're going to have here, just to let you know ahead of time, is a multi-nation assault force that is described. And as we're going to see, uh, the indicators would point to a configuration of Russia, the Central Asian Republics of the former Soviet Union, Iran, Sudan, Turkey, and Libya as the leading nations in this assault on Israel. So let's look at a little bit of the details. You know, it says in verse 2, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. Now, Gog is really a title. It, it, it literally means supreme. It's, it's pointing to a leader of this configuration of nations. And it talks about Gog of the land of Magog. Now, Magog, that people group we know, lived in the area of the southern part of the former Soviet Union near the Caspian and Black Seas. 
And so scholars would say Magog would point us to those Central Asian republics like Kazakhstan in the green, Turkmenistan in the red, Uzbekistan in the purple, Tajikistan in the light green, uh, Kyrgyzstan in the orange, and Azerbaijan in the western part of that map that you're looking at, also in the orange. That would make up the people of Magog in our day today. Now, it goes on. It talks about the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Now, some of your translations, I think the NIV translates it as chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Differing views of the translators. But Old Testament scholars Kyle and Gesenius tell us that this word Rosh is actually not an adjective, it is a noun, it is a place. And what is really interesting is, is that when you go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which happened 400 years before Jesus, then the word R-O-S-H in that translation is the word R-O-S, Ross. And Gesenius tells us that the the people of Ross were identified very clearly in the 10th century as the people who lived north of Israel by the river Volga. And if you know your geography, you'll know the river Volga is in Russia. So the appearance would be that, that Rosh or Ross would be a reference to Russia. In fact, in Ezekiel 39.2, it talks about these people being to the uttermost north, to the remotest parts of the north of Israel. And if you get a globe out, it's very interesting. If you find Jerusalem and you track directly to the remotest parts of the north, you know what city you end up in? You end up in Moscow. So we believe that this is a reference, Ross or Rosh, to the Russians. The prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. You might be saying, where did all these weird names come from anyway? But did you know that Meshech and Tubal were grandsons of Noah? And in, in ancient times when Ezekiel was written, they, that people group lived in what we now call modern Turkey. And then as, the, as this configuration of people comes together, in, in verse 5 it says it involves those from Persia. Most of us would know that Persia is modern-day Iran. And then it mentions Ethiopia in the New American Standard. I think it says Cush in the NIV. The margin of the New American Standard will say literally Cush. And the people of Cush, we know, lived in ancient times in what we now call modern Sudan and Ethiopia. It mentions the people of Put, which again we know uh, takes on the area that we would now call Libya and Algeria and Tunisia. And then there's also the people of Gomer. That's a little more difficult for the translators to completely agree on. But in all likelihood, it's also referring to the area, the people group around Turkey. Josephus, the great historian, said that the people of Gomer lived in Galatia. And if you know anything about your New Testament history, you'll know that Galatia is modern-day Turkey. And then there's the people of uh, Beth, Togomar. And uh, by the way, Beth just means house. It's the house of Togamah. 
And uh, we also know that those people lived in the area of Turkey. So you begin to see this, this group of nations that are set against Israel after they've been regathered into the land. And we know the list is not complete because in verse 6 and in verse 9 and in verse 15 and in verse 22 it says there will be many other peoples with you. But this is the core group of people who assembles together in a coalition against Israel. Now why is that so interesting? Well, if you just step back and you look at what's going on in our culture right now, you'll find out that we have a great allegiance built around these very nations. In fact, all of the nations but Russia are Islamic nations. And we know that radical Islam is very highly motivated to come against Israel. And all of those Islamic nations that we have rattled off, along with Russia, are very closely allied together. They are receiving all of their military investments and supports and supplies from Russia. And one of the things that is very, very clear, if you do very careful reading today, you will know that these Islamic nations have a very clear agenda. And what their desire is, is to wipe Israel off of the map. And you go and you begin to listen to their rhetoric and you begin to listen to what they're saying and you will see that it, it's very clear this group of nations supported by the ally of the power of Russia in the north are set against Israel. In fact, we're going to talk more about that next week. But the first thing we said we were going to do is look at the flow of Ezekiel. The second thing we were going to do is look at the lineup of nations. What we want to do is move in a little closer now and look at their aim. And at the same time, look at God's plan. They have an aim. God has a plan in these events. And the first part of their aim, we learn from verses 12 and 13, is they want to get their hands on the money and resources of Israel. Notice it says, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, against the people which are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. And Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your military company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? And some people look at that and they go, what? You want money and resources? You're going to go into Israel? Why would you do that? But you see, sometimes we don't realize just how wealthy and potentially wealthy Israel is. Do you know that if you just take the mineral resources of the Dead Sea in Israel, massive, massive amount of mineral resources, estimated at 45 billion tons of mineral resources, minerals like potassium and magnesium, and it's been estimated that those mineral resources in Israel are worth multiple trillions of dollars. Not only that, but in recent years, there have been very significant oil discoveries in Israel and gas discoveries in Israel. And we know from what we're feeling right now in our culture with gas prices, 
we know the value of oil and gas discoveries. Their aim is to get after the resources of Israel, but even more important than that, they just want to attack Israel. Look at verse 16, chapter 38. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. They have disdain for Israel. They have disdain for the nation. They want to wipe them off the face of the map, and they want their resources. That's their aim. But I want you to see that God has a plan, and part of God's plan is he's going to thwart their aim. And part of God's plan is, through this event, we're going to look at it a little bit more in just a moment, is he wants to send a message to the nations of the world, God does. And I just think, you might ask the question, when does all this happen? I don't know for sure. It would appear to me that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 happened just before the seven-year tribulation period or somewhere near the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. But nonetheless, God wants to send a message to the nations. And I want you to see what that is. Look at chapter 38, verse 23. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. God is going to do this in such a supernatural way that everyone's going to know that God intervened. In chapter 39, verse 7, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. They have a name, and God has a plan. And part of that is he wants to send a message to the nations. I like the way Ron Rhodes puts it this way. He says, try to imagine the scene. This massive invading force moves across the land like a cloud, and the Muslim invaders shout over and over again, Allahu Akbar. Allah is the greatest. Then, following Yahweh's mighty judgment against the invaders, no one will be found anywhere shouting Allahu Akbar. What an awesome and glorious testimony this will be to the one true God. God has a plan. There's a message He wants to send to the nations. And God also has a plan, a message He wants to send to the people of Israel. Look at chapter 39 and verse 7 again. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. Largely a secular nation right now, men and women. But God is going to move and he's going to say, Yahweh, God, is here. And then in verse 28 of chapter 39, he says, then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then regathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there. I will leave none of them there any longer. He not only wants to send a message to the nations that there is a God, but he wants to send a message to the people of Israel that Yahweh is real. Now, as we said, we were going to look at the flow of Ezekiel. We were going to look at the, the lineup of the nations. We were going to look at their aim and God's plan. But I also wanted to take a few moments to look at God's awesome act. This is amazing stuff. 
I want you to see what God is going to do. Notice in chapter 38, verse 18. It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men are in the face of the earth will shake at my presence, and the mountains also will be thrown down, and the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground, and I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and with pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. God is going to intervene as this group of nations comes in to attack Israel. And part of it's going to involve an earthquake, as he states in verses 19 and 20. There's going to be confusion. There will be infighting in verse 21. They'll begin to shoot at one another. That happened in other places in the Old Testament. There's going to be disease, verse 22. There's going to be hail and fire. I don't know if something volcanic is going to happen here, but God is going to intervene. He's going to do it in a way that people are going to know that God was the one who intervened. Notice in chapter 39, verse 3, I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. And I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field, and you will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. It's hard to imagine what this is going to be like. And as I stated, it tells us in chapter 39, verse 12, so many people are going to die that it's going to take Israel seven months to bury all of the dead. Now, when you begin to look at this, it raises more than a few questions. You have a group of Islamic nations who get together with Russia and decide they're going to go and attack Israel. What's the very first question that comes to your mind? Where is the United States? Where is the great military protector of Israel? Where is the United States? Where do we see the United States in all of this? And that's a great question, which we are going to address next time <laughs> we are together. We will take a look at that. But here's what I want you to understand, and hopefully you will realize that with a little bit of this as a background, you will notice the news very differently. There is incredible rhetoric coming out of the mouths of the leaders of many of these nations that are listed, Iran and others. And what is fascinating to me is if you read carefully, this may surprise you, 
you will find them talking about the very description of what is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They are already planning this attack. They make that very, very, very clear. Now, I know there's a lot of other questions that we have. I'm not trying to answer everything. What I am trying to do is just to raise up our appreciation again for biblical prophecy. But we do want to talk about some life response. How can we respond to what we've read today? And I want to suggest a couple of things. The first response that we can have by way of some life response is to stay on the alert. Jesus himself said that. We need to read the signs and we need to stay on the alert. Men and women, this is no time for spiritual sleepwalking. We need to be awake and we need to be alert and we need to be paying attention to what is going on in the world around us. So the first life response we are to have is to stay on the alert. Second life response I believe that we are to have is to rely on the rock. God is sovereign. And one of the things that just leaps out of the pages to me in this whole section of these two chapters is how much we are reminded that God is sovereign. Look at chapter 38 and verse 4. Who's really in charge here? God says, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out, all your army and horses and horsemen and your entire group. They're devising an evil plan, but God says, I'm the one who's in charge and I'm like literally putting hooks in your jaw and I'm going to lead you down there. You will come down exactly when I want you to come down. I am sovereign. I like it in verse 8 when he says, after many days you will be summoned. Who's doing the call? God is in his sovereignty saying the time is right. You have an evil plan, but I'm in charge of everything that's happening. And then we have verse 16 of chapter 38. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. God is sovereign. He is sovereign. And that means that he can be trusted no matter what happens in life. Here's the point. If he can map out the future in this kind of detail, multiple centuries before it happens, can he handle our present? Can he handle your present right now? or the present you're going to have tomorrow, we need to rely on the rock. He is our rock, no matter what happens in life. I want to close by looking at one final passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. It's a little bit to the left, several books to the left in your Bible, toward the middle. Isaiah chapter 44, and I want to read these verses as we close. And by the way, this is a great passage to mark in your Bible. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first 
and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me, he says. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. In other words, if there's any other God out there, why don't you tell me, uh, step up and tell me what's going to happen in the future. Give me the detail about it. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. This is the message to you and I, men and women. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. He is sovereign. He is the rock. He can be trusted. He can be relied upon no matter what happens in life. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the incredible detail that you have given to us, for the, the insight into future events that you have laid out in your word. And Father, it's startling at times to see the similarities of what is described in sections like this with the current situation that we have around us. And Lord, we know that you don't want us setting dates, declaring specific times, but that you do want us to be aware of the signs and to be on the alert. And Father, may our confidence be not in the life that we see around us, but may our confidence be in the rock who is sovereign, who is con in control, and can always, always be trusted no matter what happens in this life. We thank you that we have that kind of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.